Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. Welcome back to Tales from No Man's Land with me, Frank Turner. Unbelievably, we are now halfway through the podcast, which is great and also means the end is in sight, which is a bit sad, but there's much more to come. And if you've missed any of the episodes that we've had so far, please do take the time to head back to wherever you get your podcast from and listen to the people we've already talked about. And I'm very excited that this is release week for my album, No Man's Land. It's out now and you can find it wherever you get your music from, whether that's at a record store or online or anywhere else. And on that album, you will find all of the songs that relate to this podcast. Have you seen my husband? You'd know him if you had. He's known around old London town. Most people think he's mad. Today's episode is about a woman called Catherine Blake. You've probably heard of her husband, William Blake, uh, who was a painter and a poet and a visionary. Uh, He wasn't particularly appreciated in his own lifetime, but after his death in 1827, he was slowly recognised as one of the great visionaries of the Romantic era. In 1782, he met and married Catherine Boucher, and she stayed with him for the rest of his life and played a huge role in everything that happened thereafter. She assisted with painting, printing and engraving, as well as all the usual stuff that women were expected to do in that time. Which, for some like William Blake, was slightly more complicated, given that he was a pretty unstable character. William Blake died largely uncelebrated and unrecognised, and his catalogue was in disarray, and it was Catherine who took the time to collate his work and save it for posterity. But of course, she herself has never received much in the way of recognition. The song that I wrote is called I Believed You, William Blake, and it's a song that adopts the first-person narrative inhabiting the voice and the perspective of Catherine, which is similar to a poem called Joy by the poet Sasha Dugdale. So I met up with Sasha at the side of Catherine's grave in London to talk about Catherine's life. This afternoon, I find myself on a typically overcast English summer afternoon in the magical, tranquil peace of Bunhill Cemetery uh, and Burial Ground, which is uh, in central London. And I'm joined today by Sasha Dugdale, who is a British poet, playwright and translator. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, So I've written this song about Catherine Blake. And as we sit here, I can see out of the corner of my eye, about 10 metres away, the grave of William and Catherine Blake, which is... A magical thing. Uh, but let's begin by, uh, if you could tell us your connection with Catherine Blake and how you've come to know about her and write about her. I was commissioned to write a play about William Blake uh, for a Russian arts museum and the museum asked me to write a monologue in effect and I wanted to write in the voice of William Blake and I did a lot of research. I mean, I worked on it for many months and I read everything William Blake had written. I looked at all his illustrations, his engravings, his drawings and started trying to write from the point of view of William Blake. But I found it absolutely impossible because there isn't a chink in the armour. He speaks so eloquently for himself. There's pretty much nothing you can add. And I spent ages trying to work, work out how to get in. And suddenly, one evening, I started writing in the voice of Catherine Blake. And it just took hold. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote for about a week in Catherine Blake's voice. 
Wonderful. Well, so so here, here we come across our subject matter for the day, which is, so William Blake, obviously very famous. And most people have heard of William Blake, the author of Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, we'll go more into his life story. But our focus today is his wife, Catherine, who is a less recognised historical figure, I would say. We know pretty much nothing about Catherine Blake. There's very little written evidence about her life. I mean, there are obviously no photographs, no pictures. They lived a very, very quiet life, and they lived in really relative poverty. They certainly weren't living the life of kind of genius artists or craftspeople. And so that interested me a lot because there's a hole where her life should be. We know enough to be able to reconstruct something of it, but we know nothing from her. Well, this was my sort of connection to it was I'm a big fan of Peter Ackroyd and I read his biography of Blake, which was wonderful and engaging as it were. But I mean, I wouldn't say that he like he underrepresents her in his biography of William Blake. But throughout it all, every time she came up, I was sort of captured by this slightly shadowy figure on the edge of the story who just struck me as more important than she was being credited with, or at least more, more of a contributor to, to the art and, and the reputation of her husband than, uh, than people would normally allow. Yeah, they met when they were both, I think, 20, and they lived with each other pretty much 50 years, side by side. William Blake didn't really socialise a huge amount, so they were thrown upon each other. And um, Blake taught her to read and write... And once he'd taught her to read and write, he then taught her how to engrave. And he'd gone through an apprenticeship in engraving, um, and he taught her everything he knew. So she was also, in effect, an apprentice engraver, and they worked so side by side. And what I really wanted to stress, and I always say if I'm reading the poem um, Joy, is that engraving was not some sort of artist's idle existence. It was like a cottage industry. They used acids, they used toxic chemicals, they used heavy machinery. The the place must have really smelt of those chemicals. Mm. It was not a pleasant artist's life. It was something really, really hard, and they shared it. And that struck me as incredible, really, that they spent so long side by side working in this very difficult way. Mm. Well, so let, let's let's go back to the beginning then and sort of tell the story chronologically for our listeners. So William Blake is born in the late 1700s. He's a sort of classic kind of end of the early modern period London, kind of artisan, I would say. Um, uh, and as you say, he trains as, a, as an engraver. It's quite a workaday thing. He's not um, Damon Hirst, you know. He, he's not wildly rich. He's learning a craft. But within this, I think quite early on, his unique character, should we say, starts to manifest itself. So let's, let's talk about William Blake's own kind of charisma and his theology I suppose well William Blake was brought up in a non-conformist household his father was a draper the family had a, a drapery in effect in Soho so he, he grew up as the child of, of tradespeople. He also this non-conformist tradition he didn't go to school he learnt the bible at his mother's knee it was what he learnt to read and write with so he was completely steeped in biblical phrasing and biblical language he was I guess quite an eccentric child he used to go off and roam around around London and um take it all in and and there's there's something really peculiar and marginal about this existence obviously the non-conformist tradition is quite marginal at that point and um, and his own upbringing even more so and yes there's nothing high flown there's nothing artistic about it when he's articled to be an engraver it's seen as a sort of well it's it's a good job it's a job that has there's work it's a it's a qualification but it's not in any way a lofty artistic calling sure so and and then very early on, I think I'm right in remembering this that he uh, he first claims to have seen an angel in like the window of a house uh, or possibly the house he grew up in. He claims he saw an angel and he had a very direct, very workaday communion with angels that he saw all around him. 
Yeah, he, um, there's that famous incident when he sees angels singing in a tree in Peckham and that's the one that you know people tend to quote. But he saw angels right the way through his life and he also saw and communed with dead artists like Michelangelo and I think Dante. Um, so he had this very real sense of talking to people from beyond the grave and also talking to angels and kind of biblical characters. And so even in the 1700s, which is a more religious age than the one we live in, this is eccentric behaviour. There's a man who's communing with the divine on a regular day-to-day basis which I think makes him quite odd Um, and then he encounters as you said at the age of 20 encounters Catherine Boucher Uh, I think they're introduced somewhere by somebody you may know more about this yeah he's he's basically he's on the rebound he's just had a a love affair that didn't go very well and she says she feels sorry for him and it's that pity which binds him to her am I right in saying that he's almost like declared that he was in love with her like the first time he met her and, and sort of announced that they were getting married and she sort of went, okay. And from, from what I read, I mean, they, they became an established couple and engaged, indeed married very, very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right. There's something of a sort of, although it wasn't an arranged marriage, there is something of an arranged marriage in the sort of speed with which the kind of the speed dating element yeah. <laughs> of it. Yeah, and then they're together for 50 years. Yeah, so, I mean, so the match works. I mean, there's clearly, there's a romantic connection here. They're clearly people who are very in love. I, I just think that caught me about it, and I, and I suspect with you as well, having read your wonderful work, was that, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for her. As you say, she, she couldn't read and write when they met. But, you know, she's a, a young 20-year-old woman, and she meets this oddball guy who immediately announces that they're getting married and she says okay right from the beginning the thing that strikes me is that she's buying into his worldview and his theology like straight away we have no record of her kind of wondering if he's nuts or anything like that which i think most people might have done it's difficult to know how she might have felt um, because we are so historically distant and so when i try and attribute feelings to her the hard thing is knowing what feelings are appropriate to a woman at that period because it's um undoubtedly the case that he would have been a good match as someone who was qualified, someone with jobs, a steady income, and that would have been quite high up the list for her and her parents because, you know, poverty was really very, very real in London, and it still is, of course, but at that point, finding somebody who could provide for you was probably an enormous concern for women. The other thing I felt as I started to think about it and work on it is that William Blake had an awful lot to recommend him It wasn't maybe initially that obvious, but it must have become obvious quite soon after. He had a a fantastically gentle disposition, and that comes through in all his writings and his art. He's somebody who profoundly hates violence and believes in equality, and those two things set him apart from absolutely everybody at that period. That sort of love of peace, that gentleness, and that sense that all humans were created equal is something quite exceptional. And it's one of those two characteristics for me are what makes him reach out of his era and reach us even now. So she's, she's, she's found a guy who's, as we said, there's definitely there's some kind of romantic connection. He's attractive to her, and he's, he's, as you say, he's peaceful, he's gentle, he's kind, he's, and, and unusually uh, considerate of women and as individual intellectual beings and all this kind of thing. Having said all of this, reasonably quickly, I think that, not that I think that we know, but I think that her parents might have been a little dismayed by his behaviour thereafter because he's not, he doesn't stay as just an engraver as in a workaday person who's engraving prints for existing artwork. He starts making his own art, uh, which is based on his, as we say, eccentric view of religion and like existence, I would say. Yeah, that's true. And it's hard to know how anybody or how she or her parents react to this because we don't really have much record. 
And again, there's a sense, I suppose, historically, that if you were a woman and you were married to a man who was kind of following his life's ambition, you wouldn't have a huge amount of agency in that situation. Mm. On the other hand, there are plenty of things to recommend eccentrics. Yeah, I mean, he certainly... I I doubt that she was ever bored by his life. And his poetry is wild. I mean, even today you read his poetry and it's it's wild. Um, And, you know, and she, she not only... I mean, as we say, sort of socially and historically wasn't perhaps place to sort of complain or critique this but you get the impression that she went along with it and she was part of it because after he teaches her to read and write as you mentioned she becomes an apprentice to him as an engraver and then she's helping him with his own artwork and helping him produce his art yeah and he's obviously an incredibly charismatic man an incredibly original and charismatic thinker so part of the I suppose problem of writing from her point of view was trying to express how uh, that affects you if you live with somebody who's so tremendously charismatic, whether you're led by them, whether you put up any resistance, and I suppose also those sort of small resistances that make up the dialectic of a marriage, in effect. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting about William Blake is that, like, his artisan upbringing and, and basis sort of goes against the sort of more modern conception of artistic genius that we tend to have. He's a tradesman, he's a craftsman before he's an artist, in a way. Nevertheless, going into that, like, he comes across to me as slightly unstable in certain ways I mean certainly there are incidents where he he punches somebody out in his garden or something like that and he there are moments when he's spotted kind of walking around naked and people aren't all that stoked about that in that period of time and and I sort of um, this is complete supposition in my part but um, and I, I but I felt a similar thread in your writing about her that one of her roles was slightly kind of like a stabilizing force underneath his mania for want of a better word it's really hard to know because again There are records of William Blake which stress that he he was an eccentric and so, for example, he did things like turn down work or he would not complete work on time that could have been very valuable to him simply because he had an artistic disagreement with it. Um, So he was a man of intense integrity. I think that the two examples that you gave are mm, difficult to put put down to a mania. The incident with the garden down in Bognor Regis, that Mm. was a soldier who was apparently drunk. There was an awful lot of disagreement about what happened. So I'm not sure that's any proof of a a mania particularly. The other thing, the idea that they used to sit naked in the garden reading, I mean, it's it's actually a sort of incredibly affecting image and, and sort of something terribly genuine. Yes, he was very, very peculiar, but then in, in lots of ways, many artists are, and particularly many original minds sure. seem peculiar to the people around them. Yeah. But I think, that for me, the point is that she's right there with him. You know, she's not kind of standing in the kitchen with sort of kind of going, what on earth are you doing? Again, I'm sort of, I'm wary of heading too much into cliches here, but I mean, I feel very strongly that like, somebody of William Blake's temperament and artistic vision, one of the main things that they need is, is people around them who can help them find the piece they need to write and to create, and I feel that she was an integral part of that. Yeah, I think that's really true, and I was just thinking also about the idea of sort of mania, and I suppose the sort of artist that William Blake was, he was a world creator. He, he built everything, in a sense, in his, in his head. It was a dynamic theology. It was a, a whole mythical star system that he built in his head all from first principles or from his early biblical um, immersion and that sort of incredible creativity is really very close to mania because you're in the grip of something which doesn't really exist it's your imaginative powers that have created it and I think that she was a, a very benign force within that
So, and, and the thing is, within all of this, like, I'm sort of, again, there are there are sort of paradigms of kind of artistic genius and, and the sort of behind every great man, there's a great woman and all this kind of thing. And I don't want what I'm saying here or what we're saying here to sound overly dismissive of her role. I think she's utterly vital to him. And this is one of the things that grabbed me is that I think that she's a sine qua non of the art of William Blake, you know, and, and on that level deserves recognition uh, for that and, and not in a kind of like not in a sort of backseat shrewish kind of way because this is the other thing and in her getting involved as his apprentice as it were she has a hand in the actual creation of the art yeah and there, there is at least some record that she did painting and she did coloring because William Blake developed this peculiar way of using his etching skills to sort of etch an image and then paint it freshly every single time so that the image was different every time it was printed and she seems to have been quite involved in that colouring which is quite sort of towards the artistic end of the process. We don't know to what extent she was involved with with actually producing images but um, it's really hard to talk about this now because I think there is a sense that history needs to be rewritten, we need some sort of redress for the women who were there at the time and it's hard because you can't really stake a huge claim for Catherine's artistic involvement, and I wouldn't want to do that, and it would be unhistorical. But at the same time, you're quite right, she's a, a vital figure in, in Blake's own output. Yeah. And then, well, and I think I came across a thing not so long ago. Uh, obviously, to own a William Blake print original is far out of the realms of possibility for the likes of you and I. But uh, I did, a friend of mine works at a rare bookshop, and he came across an item for sale which was a collection of Catherine Blake prints of William Blake's work, which was made after his death. So after his death, she was still, on some level, continuing to produce from his engravings and platelets. But, um, and I mean, I still couldn't afford them. It was a ridiculous amount of money, but less the ridiculous than an actual William Blake original, as they call it. But, I mean, you know, it's the fact that she was able to do that and, cre- and still produce kind of artwork sort of demonstrates that she was fundamental to the process in a lot of ways, and she was able to continue that after his passing. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. What the, what the only thing I've seen of her, because after he died, she was sort of adopted by a group of younger painters around the painter Samuel Palmer, and I think she went to live with one of them um, eventually in her old age. And what um, I've seen of her is a, a letter that she wrote to Lord Egremont in Petworth, who was one of William Blake's biggest patrons, um, explaining how to treat a picture that he already had, how to varnish it. And her writing was slightly... Um, was, was poor. I mean, it was the writing of an old old person who had trouble writing, but it was also very touching because it was all about caring for the work and sure. treating it properly. Yeah. Um, so she was obviously there overseeing things and looking after his reputation and his, um, his whole kind of legacy. Interestingly enough, that story has a parallel. Alexander Gilchrist, a young lawyer who didn't um, meet Blake or and didn't know him, wrote the first biography of Blake, and it's an incredibly affecting biography. He does talk to people who did know Blake. It was he's slightly later in the 19th century, and he becomes interested in Blake because he finds a book of Blake prints. He finds, I think it is, the Book of Job, in a um, in a bookshop, and becomes completely obsessed by Blake. Starts writing a biography, which is very influential and recreates Blake as a as, a, as an important artist and he then dies I think of Scarlet, Scarlatina and his wife takes on the biography so there's another woman in Blake's legacy right. and it's Alexander Gilchrist's wife who completes the biography and then gets it out to a publisher makes sure it, it reaches the right people yeah. so it's, it's sort of interesting in terms of his legacy as well that there is another very strong woman um, involved in yeah. bringing him to a reading public and a, and a viewing public yeah 
Well, this then touches on what I think is one of the important things and interesting things is that during William Blake's life and indeed Catherine's life, he's not, as an artist, he's not celebrated. He's not well-known. He's not making loads of money. Like the original kind of print runs of copies of Jerusalem are minuscule and they're generally ignored and all this kind of thing. And from my reading, after his passing, you touched on this, one of the roles that Catherine plays is in kind of cataloguing his work and sort of making sure that it is sort of arranged and laid out and saved for posterity? I think that um, a number of Blake works went to um, patrons um, and went into the collections of patrons, like Lord Egremont down mm. in Petworth, um, who were important for, for legacy purposes. But this biography by Gilchrist, um, which was um, encouraged by some of the pre-Raphaelites because it's a slightly later period, was the sort of foundation stone for Blake's popularity after that but it happened very very slowly and you're quite right he was he just wasn't known by people during his lifetime and to the extent that towards the end of his life he wants to have a big exhibition of his work and he doesn't know where to to hang it so he hangs it in his brother's drapery shop in Soho on the walls you know amongst the socks and the nightshirts and that's you know these fantastic pilgrim's progress is hanging there in his brother's shop and his brother you kind of imagine was not that excited by this he didn't really approve of Blake's wild kind of (laughs) arty lifestyle so there's this fantastic image really of these great works hanging in a in an old shop it then comes to the attention of people like Yates Yates was somebody who was very affected by Blake so his his reputation builds up very very slowly Um, you know there's all sorts of really wonderful incidents where for example Jerusalem becomes a suffragette song and that's how it first you know comes to us through the suffragettes movement and through a musician who decides a composer who decides to set it to music so all sorts of peculiar chances of fate yeah I mean I think that if you told William Blake or indeed Catherine Blake towards the end of their lives that he would become sort of one of the great national English poets and that his grave would be celebrated here uh, metres from us and indeed I was going to say John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress just over there Um, uh, you know that would have been surprising I think maybe not surprising to William Blake who I do think was was convinced of his own worth as an artist should we say but certainly the people around him might have been surprised to discover that the passage of Jerusalem which is not from Jerusalem what we call the hymn it's right but it's it's, uh, this has become our sort of unofficial national anthem The next thing I think to talk about is that I read your, your poem about Catherine, which I loved and it was wonderful. And, and in a moment, I'd love it if you could read us some. What I found interesting is that I feel like you and I both honed in on this moment, which is just after William Blake's passing, when Catherine Blake finds herself alone in the world. Um, and for a man who lived his life and so sort of in communion with the divine and so completely convinced of the afterlife and of, of, of life after death and of the Christian resurrection and this kind of thing, it's an odd moment because, you know, on some levels he's not dead. I mean, he's moved on to arguably a sort of a more glorified existence, but she's still here. Yes, Joy um, starts after William Blake's death and it's a monologue around Catherine Blake's attempts to come to terms with his death and to grieve. Part of it was just about the grieving process Mm. and trying to frame that in um, a context that was Blake's life. Part of it was how it feels to lose a very charismatic presence in your life and what that means for you, where you find your heart and soul once that's gone. Um, and part of it was um, was something to do with the theology of Blake yeah. and the ideas, the angels, 
um, that Catherine never saw, obviously. Um, I suppose I did what anyone does when they write a a monologue, which is to put some of my own feelings about death into it. I have no way of knowing how Catherine felt when William died. So I suppose that the grief that I'm charting is something that I can relate to and hopefully other people can relate to yes yeah yeah, yeah so uh, well this is so uh, of course for you and I both as, as artists as writers um, you know we've taken this position of, of speaking in the voice of Catherine Blake I mean obviously it's slightly more potentially political on my part being a man um, I, I like to think that I've usefully inhabited her voice and sort of got across what I feel would have been her conflicted emotions but uh, we've moved beyond history and into art here I think you and I both in the sense that like what we've both written is not strictly just pure history there's interpretation involved yeah that's true and one of the things that I'm very alive to and wonder about even now is the sort of feminist angle on Catherine Blake because when you write about a woman who has been written out of history to some extent um, as a woman um, you do want to provide some sort of redress but I was very keen that it should be truthful at least in spirit to the sort of life she might have led mm. it didn't seem right to over exaggerate that or um, you know to give her some sort of false importance because a very real importance was what I wanted to write right, about yes. there's a fine line to be trod there between restoring her to her rightful place but not overclaiming where she might have fit in this kind of thing but, uh, but, but I do feel like, and I felt, as I said, when I read the Peter Ackroyd biography, I felt very strongly right from the word go that this was somebody who deserved more recognition for her role um, in, in William Blake's art because it was a supportive role. She, you know, you were saying you've read everything that he wrote. I mean, I've, I've read as much as I could stomach. And it's, it's really, it's quite hard going, quite a lot of it. And, you know, he, he is definitely like way out there. Yeah, I'd say that was really true, and certainly towards the, I mean, the long poems um, you asked earlier about Blake's theology, I would hardly dare to talk about it, because it's really impenetrable, and the best I can say is that it's a dynamic theology. I mean, it seems to move, depending on where he's standing. So uh, the images are beautiful, the words are beautiful, the phrasing is beautiful, but to say that I had a, an idea about what the whole meant would, would not yeah. be possible. So, Sasha, as we sit here, um, obviously this podcast is focused on me having made a record, but you beat me to it. When did you write the piece? I wrote this in 2012, so right. a little while ago. Yes, so you're, you're ahead of me. One of the things I've been discovering as we make this podcast is that with a lot of the pieces, I, I've sort of been trying to find people who are most listeners would not have heard of, and in so many cases, I come to them and then discover that other people have made art about these characters before I have, and I'm merely playing catch-up. Um, but nevertheless, so um, I was wondering if you would be up, sitting here as we are in the Bunhill Cemetery, near the grave of William and Catherine, uh, whether you would be up for reading us some of your poem. I'd love to. The walls are wordless. There is a clock ticking. I have woken from a dream of abundant colour and joy. I see his face and he is a shepherd and a piper and a god. I see him bent by the grate, setting the fire, and he is a fallen demon. I see him listening to the wind and sorrowing. I see wrath and misery fire and desolation, a thousand fires in ancient London, and then the grass comes silent, silent with the hardest colour of all, the mirth colour, the corn colour, the summer night colour. A thousand, thousand summer nights pass, and children weave their daisy chains and place them on the heads of fallen idols. 
He wept. He wept more tears than there were days and never chained the door, lest, he said, we drive an angel from it. And every morning he dipped his brush in wrath and mildness and out of him tumbled the biggest things of all, all of them righter than the rightest calculation and truer than any compass. Yet where they were right and true, none could say, and how they were right and true, none could guess. But I knew, I knew. He was an eye, and the eye wept and frowned and smiled. The eye watched, the eye watered. The world was a moat in that eye, the moat was a world in that eye, and his brush was a blade, and his tears made a lake. How I ache, how I ache. Sole partner and sole part of all these joys, he read to me in the summer house where we sat, where Mr Butts came knocking and found us naked, reading as we read every warm day. The poor man liked to tell that story to everyone as proof of the wildness of our life though it never did seem wild to me, but consistent in all respects and full of holy sobriety, which looks to the untrained eye like wild joy. William stood then and made a deep bow to Satan, who had been watching, and said, You are welcome to our garden, sir. Satan had a round, sad face like a water wheel and seemed tired and full of pity. He wore his rainbow snake around him, and when he saw we meant him no harm, he bowed and shriveled to a vapour. But Mr Butts came in and ate some grapes. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear in this wonderful place and to hear in your voice. And let's, let's, let's blow your trumpet for a little while. That's, that's an award-winning poem. It's a prize-winning poem, am I right in saying? It won the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem in 2016. So as we sit here in Bunhill Fields near this uh, headstone that we can see for William Blake and Catherine, uh, and Bunhill Fields is a, is a cemetery, they're no longer actively burying people here, I think I'm right in saying, um, but uh, there's lots of people from that kind of early modern period, so there's Daniel Defoe's monument is here, John Bunyan, as I mentioned. It's a non-conformist graveyard, so people who... Uh, sat outside the mainstream. And with that in mind, if, if it's all right with you, I'd love to uh, take this moment to, to play my song, I believe, to William Blake, and so that you can hear it. Wonderful. So in Bun Hill Fields, uh, this is my song, I Believe to You, William Blake. Have you seen my husband? You'd know him if you had. He's known around old London town Most people think he's mad My husband, he talks with angels And with spirits that he can see He passes time with the divine But not so much with me But I held him when he faltered When up and faith did shake And on my grave the words will say I believed you, William Blake We scraped by in the shadows Sown with pity and with scorn The great and good they never could Recognize a prophet born With poetry and engravings He presented paradise 
So thank you to Sasha Dugdale for that wonderful conversation in such a special setting, talking about both her art and mine and indeed the life and work of Catherine Blake. Um, you can subscribe and review the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you do that, it does help us spread the word. So please do get involved if you can. You can find my song, I Believed You, William Blake, wherever you get your music from. And the album that contains it, No Man's Land, is out now. The next episode is about the song Silent Key, which is about the astronaut Krista McAuliffe, who died in 1986. And I'll be talking to producer Catherine Marks, with whom I made the album, about the song, the story, and indeed the general process of making No Man's Land. I'd like to thank my producer, Hayley Clark, the executive producer, Peggy Sutton, the additional producers, Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs, and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Mile Recordings, and something else. <laughs>